Hey, everybody out there listening to The Long Monday today. I don't know if you know this, but March is National Women's Month. Now, it's kind of a shame that we have to dedicate a month to women, considering women should literally every day be celebrated, mostly because they help keep this world going and keep it on the right path. In fact, I can most certainly account that me, Mike, Caleb, have amazing women in our lives that help shape us into the men that we are today. So, here on The Long Monday, in honor of National Women's Month, we're bringing in the ladies into the studio, featuring some of the most creative artists, educators, storytellers, and podcasters that we know. So I hope you enjoy the month of March here on The Long Monday. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Long Monday podcast. I'm your one of your co-hosts, Caleb Salibi, and I'm joined today with my other co-hosts, Jason and Mike. What's up, guys? What's up? How's it going? How are you doing? No, I'm doing pretty good. I'm happy to be here, and I think um, we have an awesome guest uh, today. Yes, we are joined by uh, Pat Van Oss, who I think we've all at one point shared the stage. Is that correct? Maybe not Jason. Not me either, ne- actually. Neither me or Mike. Oh, Caleb. no, that's true. What? No, that's true. That's true. You, were, well, you, were, you guys no, were in WIT. No, hold on, I don't know hold if you on, were at the same time. Yeah, but Yeah, we were not sharing the stage. We shared a show together. We did not share the stage at any point, which is unfortunate because okay. I love Pat's work, and I wanted to work with her in a scene, but unfortunately, I did not get the opportunity. I've had the yeah, privilege, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had the privilege <laughs> of privilege of watching her on stage, but yeah, I haven't had a chance to, to be on stage with her. Maybe when gotcha. this all wraps up, we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance. But this is like being on stage. This is like being on stage together. This is like a moment. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. It'll work. How are you doing, Pat? I'm very good, thank you. Good, good. Well, we're happy to have you here. Um, I think uh, it'll be good for us to um, to kind of do like a, a little bit of an intro, I guess, into who you are for our listeners. Because um, I don't think um, our listeners, at least at this point, are familiar with you and what you, what you do in theater and, and your history with theater. So... Tell us a little bit about that. I have a long history in theater. (laughs) I started out when I was four on television, which is a kind of theater, but um, a show called The Beautiful Baby Show, where they had me there when the little kids freaked out, they'd push me on stage and I'd improvise and get them out of trouble. And then I had to quit for a while until I was in high school. And I got coerced into doing Our Town by the librarian who was directing the show. And I say coerced because I had gotten thrown out of the library for making a fuss because he was banning books. And when he discovered I could act, and I discovered I could act, he offered to let me back in the library if I would please do the show for him. And I did, and he did. And I ended up getting a national, what is it called, the National Thespian Association scholarship that paid for my first year of college. Awesome. But I wanted to be a geneticist. Oh, I wow. That's very different. <laughs> it was very different. <laughs> but I had a teacher that told me that um, women weren't researchers, and I bought it. Mm. 
So my sophomore year, when I had to declare a major, I declared theater. And it turned out it was something I could, I could do, that I was pretty good at. So after college, I started a little theater in Milwaukee. Um, then after that, I got married and did theater in Wausau and Appleton with a, a group called the Guthrie Two. They were a group that, from the Guthrie that encouraged new playwrights or established playwrights during experimental theater. So that was cool. Yeah. And after that, I ended up in Minneapolis, and that's where I did most of my work in Minneapolis in non-equity theater. Gotcha. Now, so with a scholarship like that, where did you end up going? Well, to un- it was an undergraduate scholarship as long as I majored in or not didn't I didn't have to major in theater I had to do two productions a year so the freshman year when I was a science major um, I still had to do two productions a year and then this my sophomore year the scholarship I wasn't on a scholarship anymore I went to Carthage College in Kenosha Wisconsin gotcha it was a fabulous program back then. Most of us became either professional actors or ministers, <laughs> Lutheran oh. ministers. And both they were the best. Both a form of acting, right? Both yeah. of acting, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> you can only hope. I mean, right. you've seen right. ministers that weren't actors. That's true. Yeah. Those are the people that lapse. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. There was a. I think you were, what was it? What show was it? I think it must have been for Wit. We were all at Oscars. Um, it was the the closing of Wit, and we were there. And you had a fascinating story to tell Mike and I um, at dinner that night. I think it had to do with, um, was it Fargo? Oh, my God. You've yeah. got to tell us that again. You've got, you, there's such a, <laughs> I know it, it's probably, Frustrating to have to relive this because you, you were so frustrated when you told this story. <laughs> well, I was in Minneapolis at the time. I was doing temp work, and the deal was that I could get off for auditions. No, I wasn't. In, I was in Chicago. I worked in the Sears Tower for um, the guy who owned Fruit of the Loom. <clears throat> so I got a call one day from my agent in Minneapolis, and she said, come on down, I want you to audition for a movie by the Coen brothers. And I had a bucket list, and the Coen brothers was basically the bucket list. (laughs) So I got in the car, and I drove to Minneapolis, which was five hours, and got to the Marriott, and all these women were there for the audition. And I finally got in, and um, Joel and Ethan Coen were sitting at the table. (laughs) And I read this part that they had heard like 88 times that day. And they were roaring with laughter. And I thought, all right, if I don't get the part, at least I didn't screw up the audition. So I drove all the way home. And the telephone at the time we had um, answering machines was flashing, 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 flashing. So I picked it up, and it's my agent, and she said, they want you for a callback. I said, I'm so excited. They laughed and laughed and laughed, and I get to meet the Coen brothers. And my agent said, of course they laughed, Pat. They wrote the lines. They think they're hilarious. (laughs) 
come back in two days. So I hung up and I felt a little, you know, sad about it. But I came back in two days. I drove all the way to Minneapolis. It's five hours. I get there. There aren't very many people in the lobby at the Marriott anymore. So I get called in. I was one of three people. They're the Cohen brothers. They know me by my first name. Hi, Pat. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. And I read again with a reader. And you know how readers are. They pick the worst people in the world with no <laughs> feedback, nothing to read. A, a funny part. So I read again, and they're laughing and laughing, laughing, laughing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll get a hold of you. So I drove all the way home, five hours. I get home. The light's flashing, 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 flashing. I pick it up. It's Jane Brody, who was my agent. Pat, they loved you. Yeah, I know. They laughed, but that doesn't mean anything. No, but they loved you. They loved you. They want you to come back and read with the guy that they're going to cast in the lead. And I said, who's that? Ron Howard. Opie? Yeah, Ron Howard. <laughs> so a couple of days later, I drive all the way back to Minneapolis. I go to the Marriott. I go into the room because there's nobody else there. And there is Opie and Ethan Cohen and the other Cohen brother. <clears throat> so I read with, what's his real name, Ron. And we hit it off. I mean, we sat, we must have talked in there for an hour. We had just a wonderful time. And then I left and I drove all the way back to Chicago and the lights flashing, 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 flashing. I pick it up. It's Jane. She says, you got the part. And they're going to fax the contracts to you at Farley at Fruit of the Loom. They're going to fax the contracts to you, but you they won't take them until Ron Howard clears his calendar. So I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And she calls me back, and she says, I'm sorry, there's a problem. They want to shoot this in February, and Ron's in edit for, what was the name of that movie, The Right Stuff, the astronaut movie? Oh, the Apollo yeah. 13. Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. and he can't come in February. He wants to push this back to March, but we don't know if we're going to have snow in March. So I'm sorry they're going to recast the part with Bill Macy, and they decided that <laughs> you look too much like Bill Macy. It would be like brother and sister. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at me, Bill Macy comes to mind, right? That's exactly who I look like, Bill Macy. I was, I was so, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. So I was at work when I got that call. <clears throat> and I'd been doing temp, and they'd been after me to come and be Bill Farley's executive assistant. He was just a beast to work for. But he paid an unbelievable amount of money, and you got a clothing allowance. You're on for 24-7. And I thought, you know what? I can't do this anymore because not getting that part almost made me cry. And you know, when you get that emotionally involved in getting a part or not getting a part, it's time to get out. So I went into Bill's office, and I said, if you want me, you can have me. He said, no more additions, no more additions, I quit. He said, all right, we're going to start tomorrow. And I called my agent, and I told Jane, 
you know, you whole, you know, the whole Macy thing. I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. I quit. I can't handle it. You quit. Yes, I quit. All right. So the next day, I'm sitting at my brand new desk, executive assistant to Bill Farley. It's beautiful, 60th floor. We took the whole 60th floor of the Sears Tower. You could look out onto the lake. You could see Miggs Field so that I was sure when his plane landed, I knew to clean up my act and get the office going so that when you went up the elevator, everything was prepared. It was, it was beautiful. It was a new adventure. And my phone rings, and I pick it up. Hi, is this Pat? Yeah, who's this? This is Ethan Cohen. What? <laughs> it's Ethan Cohen. Remember Ethan? Of course I remember you. And I wanted to say, how did you get this number? But I, it's Ethan Cohen, so you don't ask questions. He said, I am so, so sorry about what happened. And to prove how sorry I am, we wrote you a scene. Uh, we wrote in a character and wrote you a scene, but we've got to shoot it next week. Will you do it for us? And I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Cohen, but I quit. You what? I quit. I, I, I made a commitment to a new job that's not in the business, and I quit. Are you sure you can't change your mind? And I've always thought if you make a commitment, you make a commitment. So... I said, no, I can't do it. Well, as it turns out, first of all, the woman that got the part that I auditioned for, and this was not the pregnant cop, it was the woman that gets kidnapped. She ended up to be my future husband's ex-girlfriend. <clears throat> and... Every place I went for the next five, six years, it was Fargo this, Fargo that, Fargo this. I went to graduate school at Northwestern. They had a class on Fargo. I couldn't stand it. But it changed my life. I mean, it took me on a different turn. I got into storytelling through Northwestern, and that was a good thing. But what a crazy situation. Man. And you still, and you you still can't get rid of it because now they have a Fargo TV show. I know. Yeah, it just keeps I, going, man. <laughs> I know. It just keeps on and on and on and on. Yeah. It's like, tor- at first it was, tor- I couldn't watch the movie for years, really. And then I finally did, and it was wonderful. Except that that woman that took my part, I could have done much better. But, you know, looking just like Bill Macy, um, what are you going to do? <laughs> man. Uh, Mm. I couldn't picture Ron Howard playing that role, though. Now, now if you're thinking about it, it'd be weird to see Ron Howard in that part instead of William Macy. It'd be weird and strange. But it's funny, Pat, you you told us that story, Caleb and I, um, and, you know, part of me was wondering, like, how in the world did you end up in Myrtle Beach and this little professional theater called Atlantic Stage? Like, how do you go from that to eventually ending up at Myrtle Beach where we were and getting involved in I Love You Perfect Now Change and Wit and all this stuff? It's got to be an interesting journey, I think. It, it was it's torturous. I was forced to move here, mm. and I've been looking for a way out ever since. Wait, whoa, whoa. forced to move here? <laughs> I got to hear this story now. Well, yeah, my husband's um, stepmother was 95. He was flying. We lived in Spring Grove at the time, which is like an hour out of Chicago. 
I wasn't doing theater then. I went back into teaching when I finished graduate school. And he was flying to Myrtle Beach and coming back every time something happened because his father had died. And he said, I can't take this anymore. Um, we're moving to Myrtle Beach. I said, I'm not moving to Myrtle Beach. He said, well, then you can stay in the house while I'm taking the furniture. <laughs> so I had to go. He built me a beautiful new house. It's beautiful. Um, then she died a year after we got here, which was, it's been almost eight years. And if it hadn't been for California Improv, uh, California, Carolina Improv and Atlantic Stage, I would have lost my mind. So that's how I, I, I ended up at Atlantic Stage because I worked for Cal, uh, Carolina Improv. And there was an audition that was posted, I think, on Atlantic Stage's site, which was right across the hall from Carolina Improv. And it said, for the audition, you didn't have to do a monologue. It was a reading from the script. And you didn't have to have accompaniment for a, um, a song, because it was a musical. And I thought, hell, I'm going, because I want to see if I can still do this. I hadn't done it in years. Mm -hmm. So I went, and there was Mindy. And the script had like three lines in it. She said, do you have a monologue? I said, I didn't need a monologue. So I read the three lines, and she turned to the woman next to her. Her name is Meredith, and she said, I heard her say, oh, thank God she can act. And then she asked me if I had accompaniment to the song. I said, you said I didn't need accompaniment to the song. So I sang her a dirty Irish ballad, and she laughed. Oh, and part of the reason why I got that part is there aren't a lot of women that are my age that are still walking in theaters looking for, you know, parts in a play. That was part of it, I know. But I just got lucky, and she cast me. It was a beautiful part. And then I did one the next year, and then I did the one with you, Caleb, the following year. Great, fabulous group of people. Loved them. Still love them. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it was more it was, us that got lucky, though. To be honest with you, oh, um, I, I mean, that was let's, about to let's say. be honest, mm -hmm. and that's not that's not just blown smoke. I mean, it's, we there's you get people that come through your doors, and every now and then you get the right person. And it's like kismet, you know. You see them, and you go, "Wow, where has this person been? Why why haven't we gotten a hold of this person? Why haven't we seen this person?" So I think it's it's always great when like someone comes through, and it's like so. It was a I think it was a blessing that you probably walked in the door that you decided to do it, and it was probably a blessing that we said no monologue, no song. So you came in there, but I really wonder what this dirty Irish ballad is. Um, I, that's I'm intrigued by that now because Mindy apparently saw something that we didn't get to see, and now I'm like, what? What is this song? I'm not singing that now. Okay, right. <laughs> doesn't have a I'll name. Sing with you guys in private. Does it have a name at all that we could reference at all? Maybe. Um, I think it's called the Horse Thief. It is. It's called the Horse Thief. Horse you, people at home just google that <laughs> just google it <laughs> <laughs> and imagine pat singing it there we go <laughs> originally sung by claudia schmidt okay. who sings gotcha. it much better than i do but <laughs> so um graduate school where did you say that you went northwestern northwestern mm -hmm. there was I, I may be misremembering this but when we were doing four thousand miles there was a passing comment that hung I hung on to, uh, and I think you you had mentioned something about having trained or met or 
done something uh, with Uta Hagen at one point? Yeah, when I was in Minneapolis, she had a master class. And I did a whole weekend with Uta Hagen. It wow. was wonderful. She took me aside after the first day, and I thought I was going to get thrown out of the class. Because that's what I always think when someone takes me aside or says, we need to talk. I'm going to Grabs get you by the elbow, pulls you to the side. <laughs> and she, she said, you have a responsibility, you know. You have a responsibility. And that's all she said to me, but I knew exactly what she meant. That I always had to be my personal best, which I knew anyway, but it really, it felt like something came down from heaven and tapped me on the head and said, you know, this is serious stuff. And that's how I've been before and, and ever since. I take this very seriously, all of it. I studied Shakespeare for 12 years, for heaven's sakes, and with Jane Brody, who I think Jane's in, um, she may be back in Chicago, um, for for years and years, and she was like a, a ballet mistress. I mean, she was incredibly tough, but I've always thought that's what you have to be. If you're going to go into this, you have a responsibility to the people in the audience because you don't know who they are. You don't know what they're going through. And you have a responsibility to the author of the play because that's blood, sweat, and tears that, go in, that goes into writing a play. And you have a responsibility to open up your heart and open up your soul and give it everything you've got. Because if you can't do that, I don't think you belong in this business. And that's just how I feel. <laughs> No, I I 100% agree. Yeah, it is. It's uh, we do have a responsibility. It's it's interesting that she, it's awesome that she pulled you aside and that's something that she told you. Um, I can only imagine the weight that that carried. Yeah, it was it was hard going the next two days to class. That's for sure. Thought, <laughs> <laughs> <But>, oh no, <laughs> was this a fluke <laughs> or what? Oh, you always think it's a fluke, don't you? Pat, um, at what point did improv become a big part of your acting career? Well, when I was four. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> let's see. When I was in Minneapolis, <clears throat> there was, there still is, a place called Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop. Fabulous improv, which I think is better than Second City. Second City is improv, but it's, it, it's, it's, that's a, a way to the scenes that they write down. Mm -hmm. Dudley Riggs was improv, and he had a class there, especially for actors. And I took that for a while, and then I got to work with them for a while. And that was wonderful training, because as an actor, you've got to be able to free up and be able to experiment with things. and especially be able to fall flat on your face. I mean, when you're in the rehearsal process, if something doesn't go terribly wrong at some point, I don't think you're doing it right. Yeah. When you do improv, things can really go sideways fast, and you learn how to deal with it, and you know how to get back up there and um, do it differently. 
you know how to write it. You learn how to write an audience. And that's what I learned out of improv. I can read an audience. I'm always amazed how many actors, and it's not to say that all actors feel this way, but a lot of actors I've met have always said, man, I'm just not a fan of improv. Like, I'm just like, that's so essential to the acting experience that like, how can you not find improv, not only something that's essential, but also something that's engaging. Uh, I, I, I can speak for myself. I think every show I've ever been in, there's been at least one where the whole thing just goes haywire and (laughs) it's usually my fault. And so I'm the one who has to remedy the situation. Jason and I can talk about spinning Jenny and that hammer. I know I've brought it up before, but man, that was, that was improv central at that point. And you kind of need it because that kind of stuff can happen. It could be your fault. Uh, a prop can break and you got to figure yep. out what to do. Uh, so on, having on improv, opening I think night. It can break on opening, opening night. Yes. Night. Can we sure. not talk about spinning Jenny and all the stuff that went wrong I in that show? Hey, that was man. my fault. It's, yeah. It's no, <laughs> which one? Yeah. Vince, I mean, Vince's fault. Right. Yeah. Set designer faults, but you know, yeah. improv, I think is so essential to any actor's toolbox that to be well-versed in it, I think is a rare gift. I think people sometimes don't like to watch it. Um, even at, I hope nobody from CIC listens to this, but there were, those are people off the street. I mean, if that's your only experience with improv, those are people off the street from all different walks of life. Um, and some, we had some people in there that were incredibly gifted and some that were just there to have a good time, which we were told to do have a good time, which is not in my philosophy. Mm-hmm. But there's a very different, there's a big difference between watching improv and being trained in improv. And I think all actors need to be trained in improv. But I don't think, you, have you guys ever run into an, do you have improv classes at the undergraduate level? Undergraduate level? Not as a class. Um, it was a, there was a, an improv group, but they didn't. It wasn't training. I think I think certain universities do. Um, Pat, I lived in Chicago for a long time, actually, too. I know DePaul University used to have um, improv like training classes when they would do stuff. Um, just because, of course, you talked about Second City. Chicago is sort of like a hub for improv kind of training. You know, you have Second City, you have IO, um, all those different groups that are there. And so, you know, I think I think it depends on the school. I know at Coastal. We really didn't have those classes. You had a lot of like physical movement classes and you had yeah. vocal training classes, the, all the standard sort of caveats of theater, but not really any improv. And I do think it, it is detrimental sometimes to, to actors. You're right, because a lot of times improv, and I think one of the biggest areas that you find improv, and I took some classes when I was in Chicago as well, um, you really find yourself using it a lot in auditions. And auditions, because you know oh. you show up, Everybody looks the same as you. Everybody's interpreted a role almost the exact same. And sometimes you go into these auditions like in generals or, or even small ones. You're like three or four of you in a room and they're calling you up. Or I was I auditioned for um, the Island of Dr. Moreau uh, with Lifeline Theater one time. And I remember they called us all in and we were all playing like these creatures. And you're in there with other actors and you're all kind of vying for the same five roles. And so you have to kind of say, well, I want my hyena bore man to be different from this hyena bore man. And so... The improv skills have to sort of come in there. You're right. And I think I think if colleges are listening here, if, I mean, I think high schools are starting to do it too. I mean, I know, um, I think Lou Layton used to do like some improv classes at the academy when he was doing stuff. I know Mindy likes to play around with improv type stuff. 
it is important. I think it's an essential part now of the of the art, especially because, yeah, you got to adapt. You got to be different than somebody else and be. If something happens, be willing to like take a shot. You know, try something different, right? It really forces you to be with your partner too, mm-hmm. because in improv, you don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. You don't know if what you said they heard. You become a much better listener because if you don't hear what they said and you respond incorrectly, then you look like you completely screwed up the scene and then you've got to take it from there. But I think one of the most important things you learn in improv is that whole basic concept of yes and. Mm -hmm. Don't deny. And I use that in my real life. I try not to deny or contradict and because as soon as you do, you shut down the conversation. Sure. And just that yes and will take you just about anywhere. You're open, you listen, you watch to see where this is going next. Instead of thinking about what am I going to say next. And actors do that. You're reading a part, you think the most important thing in the script is your line. No, 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 no. It's the line that came before yours and your response to that. So you have to be able to know, to listen to that line as though you've never heard it before and respond as if you've never said the response before. And you learn that in improv, because if you don't learn that, you're going to (laughs) suck. Be direct about it. Well, it's true. I mean, that's dangerous. That is dangerous. That's why a lot of people don't like to study it, because it's mm-hmm. dangerous. Mm-hmm. I love it. Another funny thing, too, I think in recent years is that, yes, um, Coastal, for example, doesn't, as far as I remember, doesn't have an improv class. But a lot of Coastal theater people, and I'm always amazed to see the resurgence of this, are into Dungeons & Dragons, which is tabletop, role-playing, RPG, improv, um, fiasco, which all four of us are familiar with, is very similar. I mean, it's a bunch of actors getting together and building a story together just in real time. Like there's no, the dungeon master has a preset set of rules, but for the actors, it's like, okay, here's your situation. How do you react to it? What are you going to do? And they, a lot of them get improv through that. Yeah. You know, there's two different kinds. Well, there's many different kinds of improv, but um, there's basically games, which they play at CIC and then long form, which when we did fiasco, we that's long form where the audience names you does your relationships um gives you you get the situation but they may give you an occupation and then go do a play which that's nonsense and it's magic because I've done many fiascos and think when once I'm all named, I have my relationship, I know the order that I have to do my scenes, I go back I go back in the back of the audience and think, oh my God, I can't do it. This is this crazy. I have no idea what I'm doing. And then it ends up to be a fabulous play. Yeah. It's magic. It's been a year since any one of us have been on stage. Um with coronavirus, you know, destroying everything. And, um, and we're still, we're still wading through it. We're still trying to figure out, you know, how to come back. Uh, what are some things, Pat, that you've done to keep yourself, um, occupied creatively and I guess in, in some ways theatrically active? 
Well, I do beach scene readers, which we read plays on Zoom together, maybe once every other month. Um, my Shakespeare teacher always told me, you'll be a better person if you memorize a little Shakespeare every week. So I do that. And I'm a storyteller, so I've taken the opportunity to learn and work on um, my stories. I okay. haven't been able to go any place and tell them, but so um, you write um, you write your own stories. Well, I I've wrote I've written two stories, but most of the time I do um, um, folklore, classical stories, mostly aimed at adults and teenagers. Okay. Yeah, I can tell to little kids, but I like the gorier, scarier ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. You'll have to uh, maybe share some of that that work with us at some point. Oh, we can I record one and put it on an episode. Of exactly, that's what I'm wink, saying. Wink. <laughs> See, but the, the deal is a story needs an audience because something happens between the teller and and the listener, and it's that middle space that that's where the magic appears. That's what makes the story. I don't know what it is, but I mean, you can just tell it to a computer, but it's, it's far better when you have an audience. But then isn't everything really? Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> of course. Yep. Yeah. True. It's always possible to, to tell it to a, um, you know, a small group of, of live people and have just that recorded. Yeah, yeah. I've never had anybody do that. I have a story about that. <clears throat> when I was teaching high school, I had a, a creative and challenging group of kids. And we took the kids, I think we had, I had three, six, nine, twelve. I had 150 kids all together, five, five uh, classes with 30 kids in each class. And we took all the kids, I mean all the teachers, mostly the science teachers, took them to a place called, um, it was a bog out of Kenosha County in Wisconsin. And they were doing research, they were going to do water samples and plant samples and do a little observing and blah, blah, blah. And they had a, there was a little place, a little building where you put your coats and your lunch and whatever. So we got there with 150 spirited children we got into the building put everything away we're about to go back out and all of a sudden out of nowhere the hurricane alarms go off those sirens go off and there was a hurricane not a hurricane a tornado tornado i've lived in myrtle beach long there was a tornado that was coming so we had to keep all the kids inside, so we have 150 kids in, in, a, in a room, actually, that's built for 70. The capacity was 70. And the kids started to freak. I mean, they really started to freak. They're crying and shaking, and I thought a fight was going to break out. And the art teacher turned to me, and she said, do something. So I've been telling stories to my kids for years at that point. And it always worked. If something happened in the classroom that they got out of control, all I had to do was get into the story mode. Once there was, and 
It was like you could hear a pin drop out of nowhere. I don't know what that is. But I got up on one of the picnic tables in that room, and I said, Lady Mary was young, and Lady Mary was fair, and Lady Mary had more boyfriends than she could count on the fingers of both her hands, and you could hear a pin drop in there. I don't, I, that, it was magic. And that's an old murder story. It's like Blackbeard, kind of. You're familiar with Blackbeard? Mm-hmm. From, there's a reference to it in a Shakespeare play, so we think it probably was very popular in the 1600s. Everybody knew it. And it's about a woman, Lady Mary, who falls in love with this tall, dark, and handsome older man, and they decide to get married, and on her wedding day, she goes to his house, which she'd never seen before. The man's very mysterious, and she witnesses him uh, about to murder another woman that obviously he has just married that day, too. And he cuts her hand off. Well, just at the darkest point where she goes into the room where he has all these bodies hung by meat hooks on the walls and there are cauldrons of hair and jewels and teeth. Just at that point, there were shutters on that building and they slammed, bam, 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 bam. Like it was orchestrated, and now it's completely black in there. And I get to finish the story. Just when that happened, the principal walks in the door because he'd heard, and he's getting calls from parents, oh, my God, my little kid is at the bog, and there's a, there's a tornado. He comes in, and one of the kids turns to him. You could hear because it, it was so quiet. Shh, she's telling a story. And he stood there and waited it out. When the story was over, the sirens went out. So I'm telling you, and I've had experiences, not quite that dramatic, but there is something magic about storytelling. It was fabulous. And, and no children lost their lives that day. <laughs> or no teachers did either. Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank wow. God is right. Man, so it was really your story. Yeah. It was your really story you saved them. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true. Or are you going to say, Jason, I'm sorry? I was going to say, I said, you don't really need that big of an audience. All three of us were just enthralled by this story. We wanted to hear the whole <laughs> I thing. I know. So you're Seriously. talking about you need an audience. I mean, you could tell the story. We could record you live like this again. And we would I all just be sit, we would sit here and be like, mm, what's going to happen next? Let's see, see, <laughs> see. It would be perfect. Perfect. And I just told you about the story. That's, That's a good right. story. Well, it's lasted, right. you know, what, 400 years? It's got to be good. I don't know. That's right. Oh, yeah. Pers- it would win Kill the Baby, Mike. <laughs> well, I was going to say, personally, I was hoping for the principal to be uh, the killer, but um, oh. apparently not. So, but. Yeah, If all the kids had screamed when he walked in the door, ah, yeah. he's here. All right, write a story. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll do, we'll do the Achilles spider, Mike. <laughs> mm, yeah, uh, about that. Um. It's a short story that he wrote uh, that he apparently isn't a fan of. I'm not a that fan we of recorded, I'm not a... Pat, we recorded this story, and it, and it this and really going to make it onto the episode? Off. We're going to make it on the episode. We're going to talk about this now because Caleb brought it up and Mike scoffed. We recorded this episode. The audio is kind of blah. We told Mike, I said, let's re-record it. We'll do it as like a little, like a 10-minute kind of thing. And every time we say it, Mike goes, mm. 
I don't like my own work. <laughs> That's his only response. Is, I don't like my own work. <laughs> so, Call it the writer we'll cliche. I hate everything I write. So then write more. Think of uh, Tom Wolf. There you go. Yeah, well. You write a thousand pages, and if you get 25 really good ones, there you go. Yeah. Right? That's a lot of work for 25 pages. Well, either <laughs> just, you do it or you don't. That's right. <laughs> I was just listening right. to Chaz Palminteri, who uh, we all know, of course, wrote A Bronx Tale. Um, he was talking, you know, the difference between amateur writers and uh, professional writers is that the amateur writes garbage and you know is demoralized by it but the professional writes garbage and then keeps going <laughs> That's right. call me an amateur why don't you <laughs> <laughs> oh man so pat we've been listening um to these very fascinating stories at, in, out, at the same time and it's not distracting but i can't help but notice the the sounds of your 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 feathered friend in the background every so often. You, you can wanna... hear him? Every so often. It's not distracting, but I wanted our <laughs> listeners to kind of hear your take on your uh your I what would you consider him a family member, friend, your pet, what? Well, I've had him for 30 years, so he's oh, my companion, Bogey. Yeah. He, he, he's an African gray parrot. He'll live to be 85 um, if he's treated well. People ask, does he talk? And I respond by saying he never shuts up. If you, <laughs> if you walk into the room and he can hear you coming, he'll say, who's that? Um, oh, here, I have a funny story about him. When I was first married, I had n not yet adapted to my husband. And I have a terrible temper and a very long fuse. And he's from New York, so he's always mad about something. And we lived in Chicago. And one day, we had a domestic. I mean, it was a knockdown, not physical, but knockdown, drag out fight. I mean, I can, I know how to have a fight. And he thought he knew how to have a fight. And we went at it. <laughs> Until in the background, Bogey's in the room and he starts making the sound. Which was the sound of the police cars that always went past the house. <laughs> and we heard that and we cracked up. <laughs> he called the cops on us, apparently. So we got to laughing and then quit fighting. And a while later, can I, can I swear here? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Caleb does all um, the time. Yeah. <laughs> A while later, we could bear to be in the same room together, and I was reading the paper. He was reading a book, and Bogey pops up and says, That's bullshit. And my husband looks at me and says, And that was in your voice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was. <laughs> Incredible. So you gotta be real careful what you say around him. Because... <laughs> <laughs> has has he ever slipped up around children? Swearing. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say. We don't have a lot of children in the house. There was 
I had a friend that I worked with at Farley, and she had a little girl, and I always talked about Bogey this and Bogey that, because I have a million stories about him. And she said, can I bring her over to meet him? And I said, well, sure, but usually when someone else comes in the house, unless he's known him for years, he acts like a rock. I mean, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't move or anything, but I thought, what the heck? So... She brought the little girl over, and I think she was six at the time. And I saw Bogey Reactor. He leaned in and looked over, and he said, hi. And he'd never said that to anybody before. So I told Val, my friend, let's go around the corner and just let them be together. He, he's not going to attack her or anything. We went around the corner, and the little girl and Bogey started a conversation. Hi, how are you? who are you, he says. And she says, I'm, I can't remember her name, Chelsea. <clears throat> what are you doing? <laughs> Nothing. Well, what are you doing now? <laughs> and Val and I are against the wall in the hall, and she said, God, that's just disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird because it sounded like two people talking. And that's wow. it. That's pretty awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And so how... You said you've had him for 30 years. How old is he now? He's 30. Okay, okay. So you've had him since he was very, like, what? I don't know how parrots are born. Um, he was he was born in November. I got him in February. Wow. Caleb, when yeah. a mama parrot and a ba daddy parrot love well, each other very much. I don't know if there's a freaking <laughs> egg. I don't know if, uh, what? They're hatched and then they're hand fed and... Gotcha. I met him. I went in for something else, and the guy that bred him put him on my fingers, and it was like love at first sight. Mm. So then I had to wait a while to pay for him, um, and then brought him home, and that was that. She had, years ago, uh, when we lived in Spring Grove, which was the country, really, uh, there was a kitten that apparently came over from the cornfield across the way. Mama had gotten killed by a car. The kitten came to the deck, and I went out and res rescued the kitten. And after a couple of days when I knew the kitten, Mom wasn't going to come back, uh, I brought the kitten in the house. And I named the kitten Kramer because at the time I thought it was my mother reincarnated, but never mind that. Um, so I brought Kramer in the house, and I had Kramer in the house, I bet you it was 20 minutes, in another room, because I didn't want to scare Bogey, fool that I was. And Bogey starts to call, Kramer, come on, cutie. Here, little girl, come on, cutie. And that little cat kind of waddled around the corner up to Bogey's cage. And he lured her underneath the door of his cage. He, stand, he sits out on the door of the cage. He lured her under that door. He wound up, and he cracked right on her head. Oh, my God. And, and, and then went, ha, <laughs> And that cat never went near that bird again, ever. He's just evil. Wow. Does oh, Bogey man, have a mustache? <laughs> Does pardon me? Does Bogey have a mustache? He twirls. He sounds like quite a character. No, right? that's what he sounds like. Yeah. He's wow. named after Humphrey Bogart. Hmm. 
Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those <laughs> stories. I love those stories. Well, awesome. Um, do you have anything uh, to add before we close out? I think we've covered just about everything. Awesome. Jason, Mike, any questions? Just one. You said that you memorize Shakespeare a week. Is that correct? I try to, yes. What was Shakespeare this week? This week it was, I think it's from a sonnet. It, I, <clears throat> I memorized it because I saw a bastardized version of this um, that showed up on Facebook, and it, and it, it, it was completely the wrong, in my, in my humble opinion, the wrong interpretation of it. It's maybe for this. It's um, oft expectation fails. And most oft there were most it promises. And oft it hits where hope is coldest and despair most sits. What I love about it is he says, you know, if you expect something, a lot of times it's going to fail, especially if you really expect some wonderful outcome. And often, it goes the other way. It hits when you don't expect anything. And I think that's the point. The genius is oft it hits, not once in a while it hits. I, I, and, and the bastard version was don't ever expect anything because you're going to be disappointed. That's so different from that quote. Pat, I have, a, I, I have one more. I have to ask too. I know we've been stuck in COVID and you said you've been doing like play readings and doing um, like wanted to do storytelling and stuff like that. Have you guys with the improv group, have you guys gotten back together? Are you guys doing any kind of classes during all this? Have you guys been like still honing your craft um, during COVID? I dropped, I dropped out of that group because uh, <clears throat> when we went on lockdown, they continued to have shows. Gotcha. Uh, need I say more? I just sure. didn't think it was responsible. Sure. And no, I totally I understand. Be part of it. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to bring it up. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> we were so lucky, Caleb, because you know we closed that show. Yeah. And a, and a week later, bam, we got yeah. grounded. I think we closed the show on the eighth or the tenth, and the on the fifteenth. Everything. Yeah. That was it, yeah. Yeah. We talked about it, remember, and we had mm -hmm. wipes and, and sanitation things, but it was mostly to protect us from another cast member who had had strep, I think. That was our biggest thing. Yeah. Well, I think um I think we'll we'll end it there. Um I I'll I'll say this and then we'll we'll log out. Uh the Lord of the Rings trilogy is better than you say it is. Uh <laughs> So I thought you, I, I was wondering if someone was going to bring this up. It ends and then it keeps going oh. and it ends and it keeps going and it ends and it keeps just come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with Pat. I'm going to agree with Pat on that third film because let no. me tell you something. Listen, I don't need to see them get on the boat. I don't need to see them have a little dance party on the bed. I don't need to see them have. It's like we got a wedding. We've got uh, we, uh, the crown of the king. I mean, it's just then, like there's 35 minutes there at the end that you could have done a montage and just the extended wrapped it up, cut. I feel like then you clearly I'm don't understand what Lord of the Rings is about. You don't. Clearly. Like I'm sorry, you just don't get it. Then 
Like, well, I don't want to be well. that pretentious person, but like you clearly don't get the milk. <laughs> you don't understand what it's about. <laughs> wow, here we go. Here we go. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll never, I'll, we'll never win this against Mike. I mean, even no. if he lost, he would never. Compete. Well, that's the thing. I can't yeah. lose this conversation because it's, no. it's clear that I'm right in this regard. <laughs> <laughs> Yet again. Oh yes, the magnificent Mister Mike. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll do a a special episode where it's just a the twenty minute debate. Oh, that'd be a two hour debate, please. <laughs> I, w- right. I wonder if Tolkien and Lewis had this conversation when they were sitting in the pub with each other, and Lewis just going. Uh, you just keep going on and on there, Tolkien, and then and then Tolkien just looking back at him saying, "You made eighteen books on a one subject. What are you talking about?" You know, just, yeah. <laughs> two of those guys <laughs> talking about just meandering subjects. <laughs> a closet, yes, enough exactly. at the closet. Exactly, that's the closet exactly, door. Man. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, Pat, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Nice to see the boys. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll definitely awesome. have you on again very, very soon. Thank you, sir. Bye, Thank Michael. You Bye, Jason. Bye, Pat. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Caleb, I just want to come on here and real quick let you guys know that we have a very big announcement to make here. This episode was kind of a, I, don't know, I guess, a an introductory episode so that you guys could get kind of get to know Pat. Well, we have had a discussion, and uh, as you, if you've been keeping up with the Long Monday podcast, you you will notice that we are a co-host down. Typically, there are four of us. And so the entire season two, we've, we've been, it's just the three of us. So we've been trying to find a fourth host and we have discussed and we've, we've deliberated and we think that we've reached an agreement and we think that Pat Van Oss will be the absolute perfect choice to add to our group. So we hope that you will you will join us in welcoming Pat to our list of co-hosts for the Long Monday podcast. We're really excited for this, and I just I cannot. So this this may or may may not be a, a, an appropriate story to tell on the Long Monday podcast, but I'm going to tell it. While we were doing four thousand miles last year in March, um, I believe we were in rehearsals in February. And she was telling us about there's a scene in Four Thousand Miles where, where Pat and I, uh, my character and her character, we we're high, on marijuana in a scene, and so, she was explaining and she was telling us this story. She has the most amazing stories, and the way she tells them is absolutely, just enrapturing, and so, we're listening to this story and she's telling us about us uh, about the time that she was smoking weed with a friend of hers. And she wasn't entirely sure how she was, how she acted 
while high. And her, her friend said, you were an absolute delight. Well, she's an absolute delight sober. So I can't even imagine what she's like high. But I'm just, I just hope that you guys enjoy her as much as we enjoy having her on. So I hope you will, you will join us in welcoming Pat as a new co-host for the Long Monday podcast here. So until next time, I'm Caleb wishing you a very happy week. Mm-hmm.